This Quiercast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes explore new (laughs) and challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? No, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right and you're wrong. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't find me by what I do in bed. Do you think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. You still choose to ejaculate to that. Oh my god. You can have a wife and a girlfriend. This guy just gets your face. Rubs that in. Break your bias. Each week, anywhere you get your podcast, tune in. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. (laughs) Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with John and Nat Turney. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Uh, this is Not Church. My name is Nat Turney. I'm here with my brother, John, as always. Hey, say hi, John. Hi, John. <laughs> Good. There's something about consistency that yeah, I just, I just love, is. you know? Yeah. And I do love... It, it, someday we have to do some more video calls because they need to be able to see, you know, it, you and your full, like, Gandalf beard glory. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we keep talking about these beards, but, you know... Uh, I just. What about yeah, your I, beard? I mean, come on. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to catch up. But <laughs> we are here, as always, with an awesome guest. This is not church because uh, if it were church, you'd left by now. I think that's my new favorite tagline. I'm going to keep it. Um, <laughs> it seems to make the most sense. But I'll make it our new um, shirt. <laughs> it would be a great shirt. Yep. This is not church on the front, and like, because if it were, like, you'd have left already. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd be with you. <laughs> like, so we are here today with a great guest, uh, Allison Fabricius, and I'm going to read you a quick bio and try not to say any more, so we can leave plenty of room for her to say more intelligent things than than you'll hear from me the rest of the time we're gone. So here we go. Uh, Allison assists overperforming post millennials to gather and own their scattered souls by helping them to understand that another story of them is not theirs. As a trusted guide from the trenches. She helps them to face institutions, authority figures, and power dynamics in order to realize that what they have to offer is just what the world needs. She does this through her books, speaking, and corporate consulting. When she's not teaching, she can be found crocheting, reading, or randomly dyeing her hair. Uh, as I just a jab to people like me who don't have hair, uh, way, to, way, to, way to rub it in. I, no, um, no, no, no. That is a jab. All the old ladies who look at me go, your hair is purple, dear. And I'm like, I, I know, know right? I did it on purpose. We have to talk about that. That'd be great. Um, oh, so in parentheses, a subtle sign of a war well fought, by the way. So I like that. Uh, my daughter um, is 20... I don't know. Forget it. Doesn't matter. Math is not my strong suit, but she's in her twenties, and um, she's always done that to her hair. And she's, you know, you know, since the time she was a teenager, and that was, it always struck me as really funny that people would walk up to her and say stuff like that. Oh my gosh, you know, your hair's purple. Oh, <gasps> holy shit! I didn't know. I mean, what? <laughs> thank you for telling me. But man, we are glad that you are here. Welcome to the podcast. Say hi to everybody, Housing. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> and I didn't mention the, the title of your book is Unapologetically Allison, right? Correct. Okay, so I'm not sure. Has that been published yet? Or is it coming out? Or it is. You... It is available on Amazon. Yay! All right, awesome. And now that we have all that business aside, welcome. What? Um, we're glad that you're here. Could you do us a favor and just maybe give us a quick, um, like a like a sort of bird's eye view of maybe your, your spiritual journey a little bit? And that's kind of how we like to kick things off around here. If you can cliff notes or tell us, you know, everything. We're totally fine with whatever. Um, I'm chuckling actually listening to that. I mean, I wrote that bio. Uh, I co, I, I kind of workshopped it with my fantastic friend, Meg Calvin. I was going to say that, that that feels like it has Meg's fingerprints on it. It does. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, if I, I would have just sat down and I would have said, I like crocheting, I like reading and I help people. And that would have been the entire bio. Yeah. Um, and then she gets into it and all of a sudden it becomes this spiritual religious deviant who's out to change the world and it just blows up from there. <laughs> I love it. And I don't know that I, I don't know until you read that actually, like hearing it, someone else read it, that I had stepped so far away from what I knew. And I think most people that I have grown up with and that still see me, like, would sit down and have a conversation and I would have a conversation with them just fine. But in my head being like, but 
um, no, but um, uh, no. And they would have no idea. Um, so I think for me, my spiritual journey is I am a bit of a covert uh, Latter-day Saint. So I was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, grew up with Perlance of Heavenly Father, and ended up serving a mission in Cambodia. And just like whatever that I had been taught was true because it just was. Like if someone from a pulpit had told it to me, it must be true. That's how it is. And I'm like, I love watching your reactions. And you're like, hmm, mm-hmm. uh, that's not the case now. Um, insofar that I just ask a lot more questions. And yeah, I think sure. really the basis of Unapologetically Allison was, God, I have questions. Please tell me. I love and it. Yeah. his answers were not earth shattering, were not a testimony shattering, but they were just different. And so it is learning, like this story is coming to terms with, can I be okay with different? And can I be okay with what I feel to be true within myself can be different than the people sitting next to me. And that doesn't mean anything about me and it doesn't mean anything about them. It just means it's different. Um, So if I were, that's sort of the medium version. I guess if I were to sum it up in a one-liner, it's I started asking questions and realizing that asking questions wasn't Bad. Yeah, that's great. Just as a point of clarification, just and I'm not sure why why it matters, but are you are you still LDS or are I you? Am. Okay, so that's I awesome. still am a practicing on the records member of the church. That, for the record, is amazing um, because we've heard. Well, no, and, and the reason I say that is is because we've heard deconstruction stories from evangelical Christians ad nauseum, and and I don't think I've ever heard someone's sort of deconstruction story, if that's, you know, if, if I can put it in those terms, from inside of something like the LDS, or like the closest we got was uh, uh, the guy who was Seventh-day Adventist, which is still, you know, it's not mainstream Christianity, but you know what I'm saying? So for, for those of us who grew up evangelical, even Seventh-day Adventists are like, whew, yeah, you're fringe. You know what I mean? I think you're Christian mostly, but there's some weird stuff, you know? Uh, actually, no, wasn't James early Christian science as well? So we have some Seventh-day Adventists and we've had one feller from inside. Of, but anyway, so I think that's cool to get another completely different perspective on what it means to question an institutional church that is not one that John and I are, are familiar with or have been steeped in. So, I, man, I welcome the conversation. That's awesome. What do you think, John? Uh, and I'm not sure if you were in, in the youth group at the time when this moment occurred. And so and this is going to explain, I'm going to say a majority of, evangelical Christians and their opinion of the Mormons, right? Which is that you're you're one step away from Satan incarnate, first of all, right? Well, it's always caveated though with like really nice people. Yeah, they're really nice people, but they are so lost and so but, going yeah, to hell, yeah. right? <laughs> and so we had this like, I don't remember why we did it. It was with, I'm not going to say his name, with, with our, with, with our, yes, with DS. Do you remember this? Yeah, I do. Okay, so he invites two Mormon missionaries to a morning Bible study youth group, but he sets it up so we're all there prior, right? So this was 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 like some plan of attack against these two Mormon missionaries, and I feel so bad about it. But I was just like, okay. But the one thing he said, and it stuck with me, it stuck with me forever, is like, we're going to ask them how they know that their version of Christianity or their version of God and Jesus is true. And they're going to say, he says something like, they're going to say that there is a, there's a, like a, a warming in the heart or a, a, a place in their heart that acknowledges this. And he's like, see, they can't even give us like realistic answers. They give us this esoteric. I was like, isn't that what all Christians do? Yeah, because ours are so, because yeah. ours makes so much sense. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking he's, 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 he's attacking these Mormons because they, all they have is their feelings, right? On how they connect with their God. And I have never had anything but a feeling on how I connect with my God, right? Because there's never been a factual moment. So the Book of Mormon cannot be true because it's not the Bible. The, in the Book of, even though Mormons read the Bible, they use the Bible, right? And We're it was- in the middle of Zechariah, yeah, right? So now. it's, Exciting it was stuff. always really, it was the beginning of something, you know, because Nat knows and anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I, I, I ask lots of questions and it gets me in a lot of trouble. 
And so even back then, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're using the arguments that they would, anyone would use against us, you know, in our Christian faith as there's, you're just, you're just using your heart and your, and your belief and your faith as opposed to facts. And <laughs> I'm like, that's, isn't that what, isn't that what faith is? <laughs> I, I, was, I was so, so blown yeah. away by it. But yeah, I yeah. digress. That was, no, that was, and, we, and we don't want to take over the conversation with this discussion. Right, I'm right. Just, I, I am pleasantly, I was sort of just sort of pleasantly blindsided. I, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that. So I love the angle of having a conversation with somebody from a, from a different, from within a different institution. Now that we're having the conversation, I'm not sure it has occurred to me until now. What happens when people inside of other religious institutions begin to question that? Oh my gosh. Okay. So thank you for this, by the way. No, I, I think it's, I'm sorry. I, I'm trying to express how genuinely like, excited I am to have this conversation with you. I think it's great. So the LDS church, like any other institutional church though, in my, I would, I would, I would imagine does not love to be questioned. Am I wrong about that? Hmm. Are there, is there a lot of space inside of that institution to be like, Oh no, no, bring us all your questions and please, please be really critical. I think it depends on which group you're talking to and which group you're talking about because we're living in a time right now where the prophet for the church and to, according to doctrine, the prophet for the whole world is his main request of all of the members is to hear Christ, is to hear what God has to say for each one of us. That's new. <laughs> That's his emphasis, his direction on this at least feels new to me. I won't speak for anybody else, but for me, this is new. It's what does he have to say to you? How does he, how is he guiding your life? Enter the rest of the older generation of the church who, because this is new, that's not how they were raised. That's not how they lived. And so you're coming into also an older generation that are teaching your classes, who are taking part in our meetings, who are all saying, you doubt your doubts first you just listen to whatever they say over the pulpit and that's what you're going to hold on to. That's what you pay attention to. So there's a there's a difference of opinion. There's a difference of learning and asking questions or stating things is kind of uncomfortable because when you say, hey, this is this new interpretation, they'll nod their head and say yes. And then they'll say, oh, but you mean it like this, right? And you're like, no, I don't mean it like that. I don't mean it like that at all. And so there's also sort of a change of like, People want to support you. People want to encourage you. But people are also like, but you meant it this way, right? You had to have meant it this way. Another thing that occurs to me, and I'm, again, please forgive. I'm, like, I'm probably going to caveat most of my questions now with, I don't know much about LDS. And so I don't want to, I, I want to ask questions that are thoughtful, but they will, be, they will be slanted from my own lack of experience, okay? So just, if anything comes off as weird, know that it's because I just don't know. But, Inside of say Christianity, um, sort of okay, mainstream Christianity. I don't see even saying that was like, wait a minute, you're now you're speaking about LDS as though they're not inside the okay. From inside of mainstream Christianity, <laughs> see, I'm gonna this is a minefield all of a sudden. I'm not gonna be offended. I'm just no, gonna tell well, you. I, I, please, yeah, please don't, because there is no offense intended at all. I just I'm genuinely curious. Like there is a whole cottage industry of people who write books and and sell books. And there's, you know, Lifeway Christian Bookstore and other Bible bookstores. And there's this whole multi-billion dollar industry. Um, does that sort of thing even exist inside of the LDS church? Is And if so, is it completely like centralized within the church? Because I don't know that I've ever walked into like a mainstream Christian bookstore and went, oh, there's the LDS section. They would have been like, oh, Paris, the damn thought. Uh, yes. No. So there are <laughs> two sort of main, con- like main companies, publishing companies within the culture. And I'm not going to say they're within the church uh, because the church owns a distribution center, which distributes like actual text that you would use in Sunday school. So like we have, we have a publishing company that publishes like our church magazines, the Liahona and it used to be the Enzyme. But anyway, so like we have a publishing company within the church that does actual church text. They publish our scriptures, like the the quad that we have with the Book of Mormon, the Bible, the and the Pearl of Great Price. So there's that. And then outside of church publishing, but within church culture is Deseret Book and Siegel Book and Tape. These two companies, like you pretty much have to be 
a Latter-day Saint author, an LDS author to be printed at these places. And now not all of them actually feature like members of the church as the characters in the book, but like they're very strong Christian themes and they sort of fit along church doctrine. And so you have, you have these two companies and you also have, so they're the actual like publishers and booksellers. You also have Covenant, which is a church culture publisher. Um, and so like, and there's a couple other ones. So there's probably your three or four, and then you have the main sellers, the booksellers, which are Deseret Book and Siegel Book and Tape. And what's really funny is I chose not to even approach them because I knew they'd say no. Gotcha. That was, thank you. That was my second question. And then is, would you find yourself out like unwelcome in those spaces or, or did you just not even want to bother with trying to, to do that? I didn't want to take the time to be told no. Gotcha. Um, and what's interesting is I run into plenty of people from my ward, from like my town congregation who love the book. They've read it and they think it's fantastic and it's not anything mind-blowing or disturbing to them. They think it's absolutely fantastic. But it's also because I use different language for the group that I'm talking to. I purposely wrote it as you're talking to Heavenly Father in a park. That's how, by whatever weird happenstance you were able to do that, you're just doing that. But the questions that my young selves are asking in this book are because what I was taught wasn't enough. Because my life experience is not tracking with what I was told. And I wanted to get it from the source and I wanted to hear what he had to say. Not from anybody else, not from anybody else's interpretation. And this intergenerational thing I was talking about earlier... The people who publish the books, the people who run those companies that sell the books, I'm not saying that they'd say no, and I'm not saying they'd even consciously do it. But there is a, this is weird, this is different, this won't sell. It kind of feel that maybe that's just me projecting, but that's how I felt about it. So I didn't even touch it. <laughs> okay, very cool. See, you learn something, John. You learn something every day. I have a good friend who um, we, lost, we lost track of each other for quite a few years, and then we reconnected actually through Facebook. And in in reconnecting, found out that she had uh, converted to Mormonism, uh, which was at the time that we knew each other. Neither one of us were any any kind of faith, so it wasn't it wasn't a shock to me that she what she chose. It was a shock, it was a shock to me that she chose anything because we were both very unreligious. And one of the first things in our conversation was though how progressive she was, you know. And again, my my lack of in my connection to LDS is that they, you know, they are not, they are not very progressive, very much like a lot of our evangelical fundamentalist friends that we have. Um, so it was, it was really eye opening and, and interesting to find out that she had found a, a space within that church that allowed her to be this progressive person still. Because the person I knew, you know, years and years ago, it, she's, she's still the same person. She just has a faith now. And it was interesting, and it was very, uh, very comforting for me actually to to know that she had found a place within a faith that is allowing her to ask these hard questions, and she does, and she's very vocal with the questions that she asks the church. Uh, so, I think a lot, specifically in like Nat says, in mainstream Christianity, we just think that I think that we think there's just one form of the LDS Church. And there isn't any outliers or isn't anyone saying, hey, we can do this different if we just, and like you said, you know, these new ideas being brought forth. Um, again, I'm not going to try to explain that because I'm not first in, in the LDS faith, but it's, it was interesting to see that there was space for that. More so actually than I think there was, that there is in some evangelical movement, specifically the Christian right and in those people, right? I think they are so close-minded that they wouldn't even allow for this conversation. So it was, it was, it was nice to hear. Yeah, that seems to be those, don't you think, John and Allison? Both. I mean, I'll ask you both. That seems to be symptomatic, though. Of I, I, I think of everybody to some extent. We tend to view religious institutions or things that we're not familiar with as though they're a monolithic thing. You know, forever. You know, when 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 I was a young evangelical, anytime we spoke about Judaism, it was all through the lens of, well, all Jews thought this about Jesus. All first century Jewish people, like we view Judaism of Jesus' day, even the same way we view Judaism today, as though it's some 
homogenized group of people who all think the same thing as though there weren't different sects and people within it who had different, you know, who had, you know, different ideas and struggles. And we see this, I think, I think we could tend to see LDS the same way. But well, look, it's just everyone over there just thinks the same thing as though there's not within it some variety, right? So that's a good question. Then are there, and, and, and again, I don't want to turn this into a referendum on LDS. So, and I don't want to turn you into the, you know, the uh, the, the spokesperson for your for your denomination. So I'm sorry. Um, we'll get off this subject in a second. But I am truly fascinated. Inside of that culture, though, there has to be a spectrum. I would think, right, of people who are like ultra fundamentalist, traditional, and people who are like, yeah, I'm still LDS, but let's let's push the boundaries on some of what that means to be LDS. And I think you've touched on a really exciting part of the faith. <laughs> Um, is that, and I, I am going to live this, just like say this disclaimer you just did, but I'm going to say it too. Like I only speak for myself and my own right. perspective on this. Like <laughs> I'm not. You are not the official spokesperson I'm for the LDS so church, right? Um, so that caveat but, exists for everybody, by the way, and it's legally binding. So don't hold her to it. Okay, <laughs> but it's it's interesting because the church itself comes from a very interesting history. Um, it starts in upstate New York. It goes to Missouri. There's an extermination order where we are like the, the group is forcibly forced from the state. And then we end up in Nauvoo and then come to Utah. And it isn't until we get to Utah that missionary work becomes more prevalent and more of a possibility so that you're actually going out and sharing the gospel and bringing people into the church. Um, you'll notice also how I said we in that we were forced from Missouri. Uh, no, I wasn't. I'm a product of 19, the 1990s. But there is that history sort of that's taught. There's this pioneer history. There's this like and that's that's my history. Like my great great grandfather was part of that group. And so you have a group of church members who they like you track all the way back to Joseph Smith and the original um, apostles at his time of restoration. And so you have that pioneer foundation of like, this is who we are. But then you also have new members that have just joined recently. They're a first generation. And it's just like, this spoke to me because this spoke to me. That this idea that we talked about, we don't have logic. It's just, we have a feeling. And so they had a feeling that this was their way that they wanted to talk to God and how they found a savior. And so that's what they chose. And so within the church, I mean, you have you have grassroots who they've been in it since the very beginning. And so you're upholding family honor. You have people who are more recent to it, who are just the spoke to me. And so I chose it. And you also have Utah culture, which is a thing that I could give an entire podcast on, and I won't. Uh, I just want anybody listening to know Utah culture Mormonism is a thing. So just, yeah. I will leave so it there. I will drop I it. Just stop it already, right? <laughs> but as you were saying, it's not a monolithic thing. Every every congregation, which is anywhere between five to seven hundred people is led by their own leadership within a stake that has thousands of people in it that then goes up the line to the actual profit of the whole church. So every congregation is going to have their own traditions and their own perspectives. And each generation is going to have their own perspectives and understandings and are going to be asking their own questions. Yeah, um, for sure. There definitely was a feeling back in my parents' day and before that it was just, this is truth. You don't question truth. This is just what it is. Yeah. And now there's are generations rising up that are just that, that are kind of growing up. They're saying, why can't we ask questions? I want to know, not because I want to put it down, but I just, I want to know, how do I know? Um, and so there's also just an, an approach to faith that has also changed a lot and is in process of changing right now. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because uh, there's that, there's that history of persecution inside of the LDS church, which there's a, there's a sense of that inside of many Christian traditions, right? Talk to anybody who's Anabaptist and they'll tell you they were heavily persecuted, heavily persecuted, right? Protestants were persecuted. Um, we go all the way back to our Jewish progenitors and the, in, and the Jewish folks have been persecuted in one sense or another. And that carries with it something that John and I touched on uh, last week when we talked about our his uh, parenting deconstructed book, which was there's a sense of some generational trauma that comes in and then tends to inform even generations down the road. They it, it shapes how they view the world. It shapes how they view themselves inside that world. And those who would like you, who maybe come from a from 
three or four generations of people who are LDS are going to carry that maybe more more internally than somebody who just converted a month ago, right? Maybe won't have that same connection to that to that to that that generational trauma that occurred that still informs the way the church views itself. And could you speak to that? Do you get that sense inside the church that there's like, hey, we, there's these things that happen to us, and there's you know that that somewhat informs how you see the world. I'm going to tread carefully here because sure. I barely started thinking about this a year ago. Gotcha. Um, it wasn't until I started looking at a hard look at my life because up to that point, it was just, well, this is just my life. Basically, you you face trial, you face misery, you do it with faith, you might have some joy sprinkled in, and then you'll get a great reward. Right. <laughs> and, Mind you, that's that's oversimplifying, and I I fully own that that's an over, oversimplification. But that was what I was taught. Like men are to have joy, but that joy comes with a lot of sacrifice, and that joy comes with a lot of pain. And so I think that that is part of the generational sort of trauma that has come down. Is this with that trauma we have to live up to our ancestors? We have to mm. bear what happens to us well. We have to keep faith through crisis. And so that was the mindset that I grew up in. Like life might be tough, but you just get through it and you'll be blessed and it's fine if it's miserable. Like that's just sort of what it is. Um, and then it wasn't until last year that I started having these conversations. It was actually in 2020 when I started the book. And it was when I had hit that point where I was learning about like joy. I was learning about building the life that I wanted. It was about actually being able to choose what I wanted and starting to going to God and be like, I have not heard this before. I just want to check with you. Is this okay that I want this stuff? And he was like, yes, please. Like dream bigger. Go try stuff. See what happens. And it blew my mind. And I was like, y'all aren't talking about this. Is this real? Is this true? And so there's a choice. Do I want to believe him? when he tells me that, or do I want to believe the world around me that does have this culture of suffering's part of it and you just deal? And I think, I'm not sure if I answered your question because I can't remember what you asked, but that's what your question brought up. <laughs> it's, so. it's not your fault. The question rambled terribly um, <laughs> as they tend to do uh, whenever I ask one. But I, I just I just get this sense that that when I talk to certain people who are inside of certain traditions, I think James would even have said this about Christian science. That there that that there's been a sense that they're on the fringes, and that there's been some level of persecution in some very real ways, and in some um, maybe just feeling more like an outsider to mainstream Christianity, and so that that comes with its own special set of of sensibilities about how you see the world. But I also feel like like within within even mainstream Christianity, there is a there's a need for there's a need for some persecution. Because that makes you feel like you've earned something inside of your faith, which is why I really feel like, like Western evangelicals in particular go out of their way to manufacture crises. Um, and I mean that as critically as it sounds. All right. So I'm, I'm, I don't have any problem throwing rocks at my own tradition where they get, you know, pissed off because we're about to enter the Christmas season and here come, you know, get ready. Here come all the war on Christmas issues, right? Where people are going to feel like Christianity is somehow being disparaged because it's not being given preferential treatment among all the other holy days that happen during this time. And so um, I'm going to get a lot of people going, why can't we just put Christ back in Christmas? And I'm telling them I'd be satisfied to could, you know, to just keep Christ in Christians. That'd be great. But there does seem to be this sense that within some of our, and again, this is, goes back to my tradition where a per, like, who was it? Oh, who, who were we talking to John? Um, that said, um, Oh my goodness, this is going to drive me crazy. Um, um, the, the moment Christianity became illegal, it ceased to be a thing. Was that Brian McLaren who said something like that? Sounds like Brian McLaren. Because there's a sense in which a real faith needs to be a faith that has trials built into it. And the second that, that, that we became sort of comfortable and accepted, then, you know, there's, there's that, there's that piece of the puzzle that's kind of missing. And so now there's this need to fill that hole. I don't know. At, now I now I am truly rambling, so <laughs> I'm going to stop. So, well, I, I'd like to kind say of, something like way more sensible than anything I've just said in the last. Oh, five I, years. Doubt, I doubt that's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, I, I would like to bring it around to the book because uh, obviously, yes, please do. <laughs> these questions are then what, as as you are asking these questions, are what becomes this book, and 
you know, and you and I talked before we started recording on your decision and, and some outside decisions on how the book was, uh, how it ended up being written. And so it's written as a play. And, um, which I love, by the way, because like I said, again, off before we recorded, I'm, I'm a theater guy. I've been a theater guy for over 30 years. So I'm instantly drawn into this, this, uh, the way you wrote it with, um, stage directions and all of that stuff where you, you, you set a scene and then the scene happens. And, um, the other interesting part is that you and I have both written, uh, yours is published. Mine's, mine's not published, but we've both written this book idea of a conversation with God. Uh, mine happens in space, yours happens in a park. But it's a place to ask honest questions of God. So how did you, how did you go from having these questions and starting to talk about, okay, maybe I don't have to suffer through all this. Maybe joy is part of, of the journey to then get to the point where you decided that you're going to write the book as a conversation with God. So I was actually in conversations with a friend um, around this time. And we were talking about how you heal trauma, not necessarily big T trauma, but just little T trauma. And we defined it in such a way that that trauma in any way is an experience you have that you internalize that tells you your place in the world and how the world works and how that changes. Um, and so we were, we were having that conversation of like, what are, what are beliefs from moments in our lives that we had that defined us, that changed us moving forward? And, and so she was walking me through this, this process that she had discovered and learned about going back to your young self. So I worked with her on this eight year old memory. So it's me in library, in the, in the library telling everybody they didn't need their pencils and they really needed their pencils and it went poorly. And, and so she kind of just walked me through that. And she said, who is someone you trust? Who is someone that could help you see this in a bigger perspective than you can see it? And my answer was the Savior. Like I needed to know what he had to say about it. And so I had that story and I just sat with it for a while. And then I went, this applies more. There was a moment that that's in the book that I talk about in the book where I had told my friends that I wanted to make a million dollars in a year. That was like the, that was the big goal. Yeah. Uh, haven't done it yet. <laughs> Still have faith, faith in the process. And I told them and every one of them ran away. And every one of them told me to be sensible and and also slightly generalization. But this was me. This was this group that like we were going to take down mountains together. And I told them what I wanted to do. And they were all like, get practical. And that was the first time that I took my dreams of prosperity to God. And I said, how does this actually work? And so it was those two experiences that I was just running into stuff in my everyday life and going to God and he was saying, let's talk. And so there would be this image of the park and there he'd be. And we just sit and we talk and it was him telling me answers for my own life. But the more that I wrote, the more that I realized that these conversations would apply to more than me. Also, I'm just a big believer that if I'm learning stuff, more people need to learn it. Like, I don't know if that means that I think I'm the center of the universe. Who knows? <laughs> but I sure felt like if he could tell it to me, then it could help other people. And so I started just putting it on paper and going, I'm going to publish this one day. Don't know how, don't know when, but this needs to be published because these are things that I wish other people could know too. That God invited me to dream that big because, and this is something I'm not going to speak to doctrine. I'm not going to speak to institution or anything else. This is me with my life experience and my perspective. And my perspective was God needed me small and he needed me humble. And I couldn't reach too big. That was what I had told myself. So to then have this conversation with him where he didn't want me small and he didn't want me poor and he didn't want me scared was really mind blowing for him to tell me these things that I had wanted since I was little, but had told myself that I couldn't have. Um, and so that's part of also why I told the story from the perspective of kids is because I needed to be reminded of their enthusiasm and their belief that life was, anything was possible and that it was fear over time that had kind of changed me from that. And then I could be that again and I could see that again. 
a couple things. First of all, I, 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 I hear, I hear Meg in some of the stuff you say for sure, because we've talked to Meg a couple times on the podcast and this idea of making yourself smaller to fit into a world that doesn't need you to be small. It needs you to be big, actually. It needs you, it doesn't need you to be humble. It needs you to be outspoken and loud and, and speak your truth, right? And I find it also interesting, and this is just this kind of a little side note. I, at the same time I'm reading your book, I'm also reading the autobiography of Dave Grohl. And so here's this huge rock star, right? Everybody knows who he is. He's playing for millions of people. And one of the things that I found interesting that's similar to your book is this underlying insecurity of speaking your truth or um, acknowledging that there's trauma or acknowledging that there are hard questions. And it all comes from this place of insecurity where you're worried about what people think of you, uh, how they're going to respond if you say these things. And Dave Grohl, you know, the singer of the Foo Fighters, has these same insecurities when he's, when he's meeting the quote unquote famous people that he grew up listening to. He's like insecure. He's like, I don't want to be that, that, that person that doesn't fit in. And I find that interesting that we, we all have that from, uh, people who are like Nat and myself, who are, you know, just running this little podcast up to people who everybody knows their name, right? It's a medium sized podcast, John. What did I say? You said little. It's medium sized. Okay. Sorry. Medium sized. <laughs> <laughs> and someday it will be extra large. It will be. <laughs> Grandy. I want a grandy. Very, very mediocre one day. <laughs> Average at best. But yeah, you're right. But that drives people, doesn't it, sometimes? I mean, I feel like that, and I haven't read Dave's autobiography, but I would imagine that a guy like Dave, to some degree, that fuels him. You know, but he's always also struck me as as a pretty humble guy, even given his yeah. his sort of legendary status. You know what I mean? This is a guy who played drums for one of the most groundbreaking bands in the world. And then goes on to form one of the most groundbreaking bands in the world. I mean, he's going to be inducted in the Hall of Fame if he hadn't already been so twice, um, maybe three times. But, but yeah, but the, the interesting thing is what he does is he keeps a childlike wonder of the greatness around him. And, and you know, and there's some spirituality to him as well, which is, uh, which has grounded him. And I think that's a, a, something else that's similar to me. I know your book is completely different than his book. I'm not trying to say that your book is like his book, but. I just find it super interesting that the one thing that seems to connect all of us is this insecurity that we aren't allowed to be big, that we aren't allowed to be joyful, that we aren't allowed to be um, anything but humble and quiet. Just thinking about the, the verse that always comes to my mind when I'm wrestling with this is like those who exalt themselves will be abased and those who abase themselves will be exalted. And, and, and this idea that how could I put myself level to God and something that I'm grappling with is, but am I putting myself level with God? If like, am I being audacious if God's the one extending the invitation and I, the one that's pushing too far, if he's saying, please get up here, join me, you're going to rule a world someday. I'd love you to know how to do it. Get over here. And, and, and just wrestling with that though, because that is a very real fear. And I love that you bring up that point of like, we as humans, that is a core fear. And that fear will run us until we can look at it and make peace with the fact that it exists. And like, am I letting that, am I doing it because I'm afraid of it or I'm trying to fight it? Or am I living my life because I can be at peace that I am insecure and I know that there's things that I can do about it? Yeah, for sure. No, that's a, I, I think that's fascinating. The other, the other verse that pops into my mind is there, the verse that says, you know, don't think more of yourself than you ought, right? And so, you know, John, John knows and anyone who knows me well knows that I, 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 I chirp sometimes about these verses that get pulled out of context, right? And so that was, that was always sort of pulled from its context and told me, you know, get over yourself. Paul says, don't think of yourself too highly than you ought, except within the context of what he's saying. It's like everybody in the church has value. Don't elevate yourself over others in the body, you know, just because you have a different role. It was more about egalitarianism than it was um, sit down, shut up, be small. It was, you know, it was really more of an encouragement. Hey, wherever you find yourself in this body, 
don't think just because you find yourself as the head and not the foot that somehow you're more important than everybody else. Um, but that was not an invitation to not be the head if that's what you were called to be, right? So Meg helped me tremendously with that, by the way. Um, I don't know if your experience with her was the same as mine, um, but she ended up being equal parts um, therapist and writing coach. That was, she talked to me off the ledge multiple times when I pretty much called her and said, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, like I don't think <laughs> anyone needs to hear the bullshit that I'm trying to peddle. And she would, she would ask, as she does, um, she would ask her very probative questions. And she would dig into the, okay, well, why are you asking this? Why do you feel this way? And then talk me down off the ledge and, and encourage me to like, no, no, people, people need to hear it. So, but I came to her, and maybe this is your experience, and maybe I'll catch this as a question to you. I came to her with a ton of insecurity, right? Masquerading as boisterousness as I do, but underneath it all is this, like, I don't, I, I feel very presumptuous writing this book and, and, and expecting anyone to give a damn about what I have to say about these topics. And so it feels disingenuous. There's that sense of like, okay, it, there's always like that, that fear of being like out as a fraud because I, you know what I mean? Cause I'm, and so I, I needed her as much for that as anything else to sound, to be a sounding board to all those insecurities and those, and those doubts. But, not to project my my experience with Meg onto you, but did you find that to be a similar kind of experience with her? So my interesting journey with Meg is I actually was on her podcast 2021. End of 2022, so 2020, somewhere in there. Um, and I just knew at the end of that podcast with her that I wanted to work with her. Um, and so I pointed myself in that direction. And I actually had written most of the book at that point. So the book mm. was written. Cool. Um, and I went to her for like... Hey, how do I clean this up so it's actually viable? Like, I know that I don't know what I'm doing, so so help. But after I committed to working with her, I wrote the rest of the play in a week. Wow. Um, so it was originally a one act play. And then I ended up, when I committed to working with her, it became a two act play. And I wrote act three in a week. And I think that a lot of what you said is true because act three was what I couldn't say on my own. Yeah. It like the first two acts. So massive spoiler alert to anyone listening who chooses to read this later. Acts one and two are the pretty part. Mm-hmm. They're the, this is everybody's life experience. This is just, sometimes life's hard and that's how it is. And act three was my truth and was, this was hard and this was unique and it might, read familiar to some and it will be completely foreign to others and people will look at me and think I'm crazy and it's fine. And so act three was definitely my stretch with her. And the amount of messages that I sent to her at 12 o'clock at night saying, I can't go through with this. You can't make me. We have to, we have to change the language. We have to do this differently. This can't be possible. And the amount of time she came back with me and said, is that your core talking or is that your culture talking? And every time it came down to my culture is telling me I can't, my core is telling me I must. And so working with her was very much a, you've already said this stuff. Can you actually put it into the world and sit with yourself long enough to do what you committed to do? Yeah, it's weird because my experience with her is similar. We had her on our podcast because she's a... So John and I are, are tied up with Choir, right? That's the publishing house that we both are writing books for. They're publishing my book that will publish John's eventually and uh, did actually publish a book that John contributed to. But we just had a good relationship with the people there. And so they started suggesting people to have on our show before we ever formed the podcast network with them. But And Meg was probably... She was way early on in the first, so probably in 2021 for sure. So had a very strange experience where kind of like this evening, technology was weird. And I ended up having, I think I ended up bailing out about half of that conversation. I kept getting kicked out of Zencaster and having to come back in. So John conducted most of that interview. We interviewed her because she had put out a book and we wanted to talk about the book. And when it was done, I immediately contacted her and said, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a writing coach. How does this work? Because um, I have something that's in my brain that needs to get... And I, and I needed somebody who would help discipline me, <laughs> to, to the, help me get myself disciplined and organized and 
you know, and hold my feet to the fire somewhat because, you know, most people that I know who have ever written books, you don't sound like this. You sound like someone who's like, I'm writing this and you've got it done for the most part. But I needed someone to go, hey, by the way, I need, you know, 600 words by next Monday because we're going to talk about it. And, <laughs> you know, so um, it helped me. Or, so I called her immediately and just, we just decided. And, you know, through the course of that conversation on our podcast, I'm like, this is someone I need to work with. I think she, I think she can help me with this. And she was very, very helpful. So if, uh, if you're in the market for a writing coach, by the way, Meg Calvin, by the way, Meg Calvin's a fantastic resource. She will, she provides an awful lot of excellent service, not just with the writing, but like I said, very good therapist. <laughs> Ask, well, you know, she has that really good knack of asking. She asks very good questions and she can get to the heart of the matter with some of her questions. Go, okay, well, let's, let's get what's behind it. I know that right around the time I was about halfway through my book, I got word that two of my sort of literary heroes were writing books on the same topic I wrote my book on. And I was like, well, what the hell else will there be left to say? Once both Brad Jurasek and Brian Zond have gotten finished with this topic, what will there be left for me to say? And so I was, I, I was very, very close to saying, just scratch it, I'll think of something else. And, uh, you know, she had a very good knack of saying, yeah, but they're not you. And they won't speak to this with your experience and the way that you've done it. And there will, people, there will be people who won't connect with them who will connect with you. And so I plowed through and got it done. So this idea... Of, of presenting these questions as a as a dialogue is really really resonates with me. I think it's really good. It's a it's a neat way. To, it's reminiscent of the way that William Paul Young, you know, tells his story through the shack, right? Where he's taking this this piece of fiction and through that telling his story and also presenting his theology. So, um, was that any kind of inspiration to you? Was was the shack kind of in your mind at all, or was this completely separate? No, I came to this. I came to this completely not part of this world. Like I had the church that I had been told was true, that I knew to be true since I was really little. And that was just all there was. It wasn't until I actually started working with Meg that I went, oh, wait, there's a whole group of people because you have C.S. Lewis, who was an apologist, who wrote books to convince people of to be Christians. And... I think I would call myself a, but what is <laughs> like, that's, that's what I consider myself not realizing that there was a larger group of people who were already having these conversations much more well thought out than I was. And with a lot more conviction than I was, because I just wanted to know for me, how did I make this work for me? But the more that I heard from God, the more that I realized maybe this was something he had for everybody. So I've definitely come into this world very poorly read and very unaware of what's here. <laughs> well, but that might be to your advantage somewhat. I mean, then, you know, you you just sort of come in, you say you say unprepared or uh, unwell read, but I would say also unvarnished and untarnished by, you know, like there's no hint of, well, I, I read these 75 books and they all sort of, flavored how I wrote this book. Well, no, they didn't. If there's any similarities at all, it's going to be because maybe God's doing something through that. And it, it touched on some similar things. But I think that's, I think that's pretty amazing. I did have a weird question. And let's go back to the LDS thing for one second. Um, <laughs> well, and, and not, not, not to just, I don't know, it just occurred to me, but inside of say mainstream Christianity, right? My evangelical background would say, I'm not reading any Mormon authors. That's just not going to happen. So don't bother. Are, are, are people inside of LDS, are they encouraged to read outside of their tradition, to read people like C.S. Lewis, for example, or to read The Shack by William Paul Young, or, or are they sort of encouraged to stay in their lane and say, no, no, we're going to read. That's why we have these publishing houses that produce works for our culture. Um, is there that sort of sense of, of insulatedness? I made oh, that word up, I think. I, that's a fantastic word. Love that word. Insulatedness. <laughs> Insularity. Uh, up to 1999, C.S. Lewis was the most quoted author over the General Conference pulpit. Wow. Okay. So like basically in the, the air that I grew up in and I breathed, he was the person that was a final outside voice about Christ and about life in general. Um, so like C.S. Lewis is hardcore in the middle of it all. Uh, we could do another entirely different podcast about the Chronicles of Narnia, but I will pivot and I won't do that. Well, but, but, 
But why? Because Aslan. <laughs> <laughs> because there's tons of other things. Okay. I will tell you this. You did ask me <laughs> who, like, what I base this on, what I base this idea on. And it was C.S. Lewis. I love the idea of making God friendly. And I loved taking him out of heaven and I loved taking him out of the scriptures and I loved putting him on a bench as just a person you would run into. And that very much comes from this idea of Aslan, that how can I look at a savior figure in a different way? And how can I like welcome him in? Like the things that drop out of Narnia to this day when I'm talking to friends about it and Heavenly Father's like, and P.S. I want you to learn that. I don't want you to pay attention to that. I want you to care about that. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's... That's what I wanted. I wanted to create its own distinct thing that anybody could open and look at and not get defensive about and not get scared about and to just look at it. Because to now actually circle back to the answer to your question, I have run into, and I will only say this for myself, I have run into, why would you look anywhere else you have all that you need? Yeah, Um, for sure. There's very much a feeling of you have the scriptures, you have the lives of the prophets, you have all of these edifying things that they're writing. There's too many of them. Why aren't you spending your time reading them? Because that's what's most important. And uh, my thing is, is God speaks to me through fiction. That's how I learn. Um, I mean, I was watching uh, the final Star Wars, whatever that one's called. Not the Force Awakens, not the Last Jedi, whatever the last one was. And I got a lesson handed to me in the last 20 minutes. And so for me, like, I want to write fiction and I want to read fiction because there's space. I'm not making comparisons to anybody else. I'm not wondering how somebody else did it better. I'm just reading a story and getting taken along for the ride. And so, I mean, C.S. Lewis definitely everybody reads C.S. Lewis or wants to read C.S. Lewis or pretends like they read C.S. Lewis. Pretend a lot like. of the other a lot of the other writers though that are talking grappling with these harder topics with these bigger questions I don't see very much um because it is the idea of like you just need to trust your faith like just trust your faith and I don't have a problem with that I did that for 29 years of my life but I'm realizing that faith and questions coexist um and so, and there are people, there are people who are reading more books and there are people that are going farther, but the general consensus I get when people read more and ask more questions is everybody looks at them and goes, oh, they've lost their way. Oof, yeah. And ah. that's real and that terrifies me a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it's funny though, because so you talk about, so speaking of say the power of story then, right? We've had this conversation with, with well, we had it with William Paul Young. If you haven't read The Shack, you should. Just because, well, I think it mirrors what you're talking about where he says, I want to make God accessible. Let me talk about God in a way that will be at, on some level disjointed enough that will make you see the familiar differently, right? Sometimes we have to get ourselves out of those familiar spaces. And so, um, you know, he presents God, the father, Papa, as a black matronly grandmother. And so we have this, you know, and then, you know, the inevitable backlash of some people is like, how dare you? I'm like, yeah, but you had no problem with God as a lion. That was fine for you. So did you have a problem with the woman, the black part, or both? Sorry, but you, that let's, let's, let's at least, you know, own our own biases. But the power of story, right, is this whole thing that we learn from Jesus. When, when Jesus is asked hard theological questions, he answers a lot of times with, well, there was a man and he had these two sons, you know, and <laughs> the younger one comes and asks for his inheritance. And, and we get stories from Jesus. Why? Because there's power in that. And there's, there's a way to see ourselves inside of those stories as well. So I, I think that's a, I think it's a great tradition if you just in the same lineage as the kinds of stories that Jesus told. I think that's amazing. So I'm actually, I would love to, I, I don't know if I have an image to write fiction. John probably does, but I don't know. It's, it's a whole nother animal, but. Yeah, I, th- I just know. I, I, I think the, the, that that's an interesting also observation that C.S. Lewis is pretty well read and accepted inside of that community, but other people might not be as well, right? So there's a tameness to C.S. Lewis, maybe because of his apologetic approach and probably because of his scholarly chops too. He's, he, well, and how obvious he is about Jesus. Um, yeah. I love, so I, one of my favorite books I was reading uh, during my college degree was I caught the letters between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. 
And and Tolkien kind of takes the mickey out of C.S. Lewis a little bit. He's like, why are you calling that allegory? Like, that is not allegory. You were hitting them over the head. Yeah, there's no allegory there, right? (laughs) Like, if you're going to write allegory, write allegory. And you make it about a hobbit and you make it about grace and you make it about mercy. And right. The, the Jesus figure is actually Gandalf the Grey and it gets all muddy and who knows what's happening. Like, if you're going to write metaphor, write metaphor. Right. Lewis is a little too on the nose for anyone to call that allegory, right? <laughs> it's like, nah, this is... Uh, yeah, I, I, I love that interaction, though, between Tolkien and, and Lewis, you know? And I love that... Um, I love that they had that relationship where they could take each other to task somewhat. And I, I, think, I think Tolkien gave him... A, a fair ration of, of of criticism, you know, over because you know, obviously, Tolkien's Tolkien's world versus Lewis's worlds are they're very they're very different, right? The worlds that Tolkien creates are um, at the risk of you know being a Tolkien head. They're I think way more complex, way more nuanced and layered. There's a lot more going on, and Lewis's were written for children, really, and he he would say so. But yeah, that's that's uh, wow. As I stepped back into the faith a few years ago. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a huge part of that. Yeah. Uh, Mere Christianity was the first book I read as I stepped back into some kind of faith. Uh, so apologetics were a stepping stone for me, but I didn't stay there very long. And that's, that's where I, you know, I, you know, I might be different than some. C.S. Lewis for me became the, the author that I agreed with less and less as I progressed. Uh, but I still hold him very dear as someone who, it reintroduced me to a faith of some sort, but um, I do this pilgrimage of sort, and I read Mere Christianity at least once a year. And uh, the sad part about it is, I, I disagree with him more and more <laughs> every, every year as I read it. You're like, "Come on, Clive, why yeah. did you write this, man?" Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I have read almost everything he's written because of that. You know, I, I don't think there's a, a book that he has published that I haven't read. And uh, so I, I do. I do really appreciate what Lewis brought to the table. I do appreciate what Lewis and Tolkien brought to the table, as their, you know, with their with their friendship. Well, and then imagine my surprise when I find out Tolkien's a Catholic. Oh, <laughs> he's a dirty papist. What am I supposed to do with that? Oh my gosh! You can't take that guy seriously. He's a <laughs> praise to Mary. <laughs> we're very, we're very, we're very conceited in the evangelical world, man. We think everyone else is going to hell. And so fine, Lord of the Rings was good, but dang, Tolkien. I don't know, buddy. You know, we're, I was telling somebody like, we're like, we're the church that sends, you know, missionaries to, you know, Roman, you know, predominantly Catholic countries to convert them because God, God help us. We got to get them saved from, we got to get them brought into the fold of the real Christianity. So it's an interesting dichotomy to say the least, but. Look out for uh, Matthew J. J. Stefano's new book that'll be coming out shortly, The Wisdom of Hobbits. I'm actually really excited about that. I find a lot of, I just know, I, 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 I'm with Tolkien on this. I, I think he resisted very much the idea that he was even writing allegory, but I'm sorry. Uh, there's too much of his own, there has to be too much of his own life experience and faith and at least his viewpoint of the world inside of those books that they're not perfect allegory at all, for sure which is what makes them perfectly allegorical, I think, because you have to struggle sometimes to find um, what we would what we would want to see. But it, it's Well, I also think it, it gives you space to learn more from it. Yeah. Because it isn't hitting you over the head and it, is, it, it isn't telling you what to think. It just feels like a very happy coincidence that there's truth there you can do something with. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, um, and we've beat, uh, say we've beat like the movie The Matrix into the ground over the years, right? Because it, it, I actually think it was done very, very well, but it's one of those things that once you start to see the touch points inside of the matrix, you can't unsee them anymore, right? There's so much there about the, about the false, you know, about the world being kind of pulled over your eyes to bind you from the truth about all this other. Anyway, there's, there's so much in there that, that is analogous to, to how we've presented faith that when we, now when we find out years and years later that the, that the directors of that movie did not write that as Christian allegory, allegory, but as a metaphor for their life as transgender people, now we're completely like, no, it can't be that. <laughs> oh, now now I can't unsee that, John. That's, that's a whole different, that actually brings a whole new level of interestingness to it. I'm making words up left and right, by the way. Yeah, you are. Interesting. I, uh, I can't I, even say it. <laughs> now you want to read my book because it's going to be full of those kinds of like made up 
terrible bullshit words, but I don't envy your editor. But that's, that's <laughs> it. it was a delightful adventure. I'm sure it was. A, did did, uh, did uh, Anna Anna Ree Anna Ray? She's the one who edited my book for 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 Soul. She did a pretty good job. But anyway, I digress. I'm man. I'm just excited. I I I have to admit I have not had a chance to read your book, but I'm excited to do. So. I have it in my inbox. It's in with a bunch of others that I'm, I'm like reading Brad Jersak's new book. I'm reading, you know, the tell of others that are sitting on my shelf. So, but I'm, I'm so intrigued by it. Before or after you found out that I was LDS? Uh, more so after. <laughs> if I'm being honest, no, I, and I, I'm, I'm just, that, that really intrigues me. I really, because I think that's a wrinkle to some of this that, that has been missing is this, some of this conversation about asking questions and, and again, falling into the, kind of the, the world that John and I kind of operate in has been so dominated by ex-evangelical Christians that another viewpoint is needed. Like we need to hear another voice from something from, from outside of our, you know, the, the culture that we're so familiar with to, to see, oh, guess what? We're not the only ones asking these questions. There are other people wrestling with what God looks like. What a, so that, 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 that's great. And I think, you know, us, there's, there's a bias within this group of people who specifically within mainstream Christianity that call themselves deconstructionists or whatever, that we have this bias that we're the only group that's doing this. We're the only ones asking questions that all the other outlier, and this is in air quotes for anyone who, because we don't do this in video, but all the outlier faiths all just bootstep march right behind their leader. And we're the only ones who have the the uh, the gall and the, and the strength <laughs> and the audacity to ask these tough questions. Oh, guess what? No, there's people within the Catholic faith who are doing exactly the same thing. There's people within the LDS faith doing the same exact thing. And, but we want to pretend and keep ourselves again in this little bubble that we're the only ones making waves. We're the yeah. only ones asking the hard questions. And it's it's so refreshing to to be basically. Course correcting and told that we're not. It proves wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. I I felt the same. I really did feel the same way when we interviewed, say, James Early, because, you know, I find that, that our biases are exposed and can be dealt with when we're confronted with things that we're not familiar with or about which we've maybe formed opinions that are untrue. And so, you know, he said, you know, he was Christian science. And I'm like, ugh, here we go. Right. And then I had to work through my own prejudices. And go, okay, no, no, okay, listen, put all that aside. I don't know anything about Christian science except the caricature of that, that thing that's been presented to me over the years. And I'm really pushing against the thing that's not even real. I'm just pushing against an image that, that has been presented to me. So uh, I need those things. Uh, I think we all do so that we can see that things are more three dimensional than we'd like them to be oftentimes, right? We, we love those two dimensional caricatures. We can just go, you know, poke over. But so yeah, that to me is a, is a wrinkle in this that I think is intriguing. Not that I would not have read the book otherwise. I'm go. I would have, but now I'm like, ooh, I need to see this. This is great. So, sadly, I think we need to wrap it up, John. Well, all I'll say is, you know, Nat didn't read it. I did read it, and yeah. I'm telling you, with with any, you know, no pre pre knowledge of any of, of this conversation, I loved it. It was a great book. Uh, I loved the way you wrote it. Like I said earlier, I loved the, the idea of writing it as a play. I really do hope that you can. Can produce this as a play. I mean, it's 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 oh, all there. Be cool. It's all there to be able to do. So, I mean, you 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 set yourself up to be able to do that, and I, I hope that you can move forward and and, and make that happen as well. Because I think that would be amazing. It would, yeah, would be for cool sure. to see. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. Who 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 was it published through? I'm so sorry. Did you self publish or is it? Through? It is self published. So it's part okay, of actually perfect. what Meg is offering now. Um, to do self-publishing. And so I was, okay. I was her guinea pig self-publishing <laughs> project package, uh, project words. And I absolutely loved it. I did get an offer from a publishing company and oh, wow. I realized that I didn't want to undersell my work like that. Um, they, they wanted a lot of the production rights. So if I were to turn it into a play and I was kind of like, nope, yeah. <laughs> that one's that one's all mine. Um, right. And also, Meg has her way of calling you on the carpet and I needed outside validation. And it was like, actually, I don't. Like, yeah, the, for sure. The point of this is to be myself. Not yeah. that I'm like 
publish with a publishing company if you want to. It's beautiful. Um, but for me, I ended up doing it through my own business, empowering lower lights through Amazon. Oh, that's great. So that's so. Is it available then wherever books are sold? Great. Well, okay. It is available wherever Amazon is sold. Yes. Damn you, Amazon, and your <laughs> pervasiveness in our culture. Um, and you can right, get fine. it in about a week. So okay. So. If you must, no, we, uh, we, uh, we always encourage people to shop local and buy at their local bookstores, but it's harder and harder to do. You know, it's so hard, especially if, um, if what you're wanting to buy was not put out by HarperCollins or, you know, or some major publisher. So, um, so Amazon would be your, would be your best bet. Uh, unapologetically, Allison is the name of the book. Um, it sounds amazing. Um, and John, John will vouch for it. And you can trust John because John reads way more than I do. Um, I'm the guy. That, <laughs> he does. You do. You, if, how many times have we got on these shows? And like, I've had advanced reading copies of books and went, man, I really meant to get around to that. And like, what? I read it one night. I'm like, you. <laughs> now, this is a play and it is only 140 pages. So yeah. it reads. It is, it is a quick read. Yes. So that should only take really me like is. a month then. I'm good. I'm a slow <laughs> reader. But, and it I'm comes on Kindle. To... So you can just flip on your device. Wow. But an audio book though, act it out. I'm working on that actually. It's so cool. I had that suggestion and that's then that's another step that I'm looking at is turning it into an Yay. audio. Okay. That that's awesome. I, I do I do consume a lot of audiobooks. <laughs> so that, that I, I, I do too. I do too. That is one. But I can see that because uh, Brad Jersack and Paul Young did that uh, that little book they called The Pastor. I say little because it was short, not because it was inconsequential. And then they had a full production, like like it was like fully acted out and it was it was phenomenal. I mean, it, it, it just lent, I mean, it just gave it so much more just drama to the whole thing. And yours sounds like it would lend itself to that very well. So very, very cool. I hate to, I hate to stop it, but we, we, uh, we have to get out of here and get on to our next one. But thank you so much. Make sure to check out all of <laughs> yeah, thank Allison's you very stuff. Much. We'll link to everything in the show notes. Um, you can go buy a hundred copies of the book and give them away as Christmas presents. Support local, so especially self-published authors, man. They're, uh, they're sticking their necks out. And uh, I, I just find a lot of, uh, I just think there's a lot of boldness in that. I love it. We should encourage that. So congratulations. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And have a wonderful winter season. Be safe out there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.